you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Verse 16 is where we will begin reading. We're nearing the end uh, of the gospel, and uh, we come to a high and holy moment of the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll be looking at it the next couple of weeks. But what we've already seen as we go back, uh, we have seen uh, uh, a religious trial of Jesus where he appears before the Sanhedrin, the the leaders uh, of the the synagogue, uh, of the temple, the chief priests, and they have accused him and convicted him of blasphemy. And he has been beaten physically. And as well, he has appeared before Pilate uh, in a civil trial. And he's been accused of being an insurrectionist of being against the Roman Empire. And even though Pilate found no guilt in him, even so he gives in to the will of the crowd and sentences him to be crucified. But first we saw last week that he was beaten or uh, uh, whipped with uh, a scourge, a multi-lashed whip that had embedded in it pieces of bone or metal. And, of course, this would have been a a harrowing form of torture that Jesus has already endured. And now Jesus is back, or he is still at the palace, at the governor's headquarters, and we pick up the reading in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Now let me just stop for a moment. Uh, It says there a battalion. The word there is a cohort, and that would have been about 600 soldiers, a division uh, of the Roman army. So he's surrounded by hundreds of soldiers, and this is what's going on. So they clothe him in the purple cloak, twist together this crown of thorns, and put it on him in verse 18. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts today. Well, there's a lot that could be said and discussed from this passage today. But I want us to focus mainly upon the aspect of mocking 
the mocking of Christ that goes on in the passage that we just read and even back uh, a few verses before in 1465 at, the, at his religious trial, Jesus is being mocked there as well. Uh, then, in 1465, he's being mocked by Roman soldiers uh, and, and, and as, as a prophet. And then he is scourged. And, and finally, he is mocked when he's on the cross by the people, the chief priests and the scribes, and even the other criminals crucified next to him. You would think that they would have some sympathy for him, but they join in in the mocking and deriding and reviling of Christ. So Jesus here is mocked on several fronts, and we want to look at, look at this situation and what it teaches for us today. And there are four points. I've given you an outline today, and hopefully you have that that you can reference. But four points I want to make in reference to this passage before us this morning. First of all, this, this passage certainly tells us the nature of Christ's mission. It also tells us the nature of the human heart, the nature of God's grace, and the nature of true discipleship. It's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I hope I don't overwhelm us with so much information, but it's very rich, and hopefully we can mine the depths this morning to some, some degree. First, this mocking shows us the nature of Christ's mission. Why did Jesus come to earth? We can see what Christ came to earth to accomplish by noticing the things for which Jesus is being mocked here. First of all, we saw it back in 1465, that he is being mocked as a prophet for his claim to be a prophet. They blindfold him, and then they start hitting him and striking him, and then they challenge him to prophesy. Tell us who it is that's, that's hitting you if you're a prophet. So they're making a mockery of Jesus. They're doing so because in the Gospels we read often that Jesus was identified as a prophet by the people. Uh, for example, uh, the woman at the well says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, they say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They were rightly identifying Jesus as the one promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the, the Jews were looking for a prophet like Moses to come. And there's Jesus feeding, uh, feeding the people with uh, manna in the wilderness. They were in a remote place and and Jesus is multiplying the loaves and the fishes to them, just like Moses did in the wilderness. So Peter, when he is preaching in Acts chapter 3, he picks up Deuteronomy 18, and he identifies Jesus as this prophet that, was, that is coming to the world. So first of all, Jesus is mocked for being a prophet. Then in the passage, particularly verses 17 through 20, we see that Jesus is mocked for his claim to be a king. After having been scourged by the Romans, Jesus is surrounded by uh, probably like 600 soldiers. And they mock him by, first of all, putting a purple robe on him, which is a symbol of royalty. And then they put a crown of thorns upon him. The, a, a king has to have a crown, so they twist together uh, a, thorn, a thorny bush, uh, a, a, something from that, and, and they put it on his head, not only as an instrument of torture, but as an instrument to mock Jesus. 
They gave him a mock scepter. It says here a reed, but don't think, uh, you know, a floppy uh, plant that uh, has no uh, rigidity to it. Uh, Think of something along the lines of sugar cane. You know, we have sugar cane around here, and it's a plant, but it's very stiff, and you can actually hit somebody with it. I don't know if you've ever had a fight when you were a kid uh, with a sugar cane, or maybe you ate sugar cane. I don't know. Or Or a piece of bamboo. So... What, can, what kind of king gets hit with his own scepter? So they're taking the scepter from Jesus and then smacking him with it. And then they, they are crying out, Hail, king, king of the Jews, and they fall on their knees. Very direct and very vicious scorn of Jesus going on here by this Roman cohort. So Jesus is not only mocked for being a prophet, but he's also mocked for being a king. And then finally, in verses 29 to 32, when he is actually on the cross... He is mainly being mocked for his claim to be a savior. We read there in verse 29, uh, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. See, he's too weak to do anything. He can't save himself, verse 31 says. Uh, he, He saved others. He can't save himself. So this is very rich theologically because we see here Jesus is mocked for the three aspects of his mission on earth. Theologians talk about it. I've prayed about it several times here this morning that Jesus came to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. That's the three offices of Christ. He came to be a prophet to instruct us and to be a merciful priest to represent us before God to save us and to be a royal king, to rule over us. And this is the sum total of all the work that he came to do. So Mark, of course, is pointing us to all this great saving work in the account. So even the rejection of Christ here is revealing his glory. Even their insults are proclaiming who he is. We'll see more about that in a moment. But first of all, we see the nature of Christ's mission shining through here. Prophet, priest, and king. Now, second of all, we see the nature of the human heart. The nature of the human heart. Now, when you mock someone, I think of uh, the people who always uh, portray the, the, the president on TV. You know, there's some guys who really do a great job of picking up on uh, tendencies and foibles of the presidents. And, of course, they make fun of the president. And, and it's generally good-spirited. But they pick on the things that they perceive as as weaknesses. So when you mock someone, when you do it viciously, especially, when you do that, you're putting yourself in a position of superiority over the person being mocked. If I'm making fun of you and ridiculing you, it is because I perceive a weakness in you and I am degrading you for it. I'm, I'm feeling superior to you. Now, I did a little research on the psychology behind mocking, and there wasn't much agreement on the reasons behind it. Many people said that it was because the mocker has an inferiority complex. The the person mocking uh, feels so bad about himself that he has to put other people down in order to feel better about himself. Other people said it was because the mocker had a superiority complex. In other words, felt like he was better than everybody else, so... Anytime he sees weakness, he just puts it down because he's superior. Either way, 
we see the mocker putting himself above the person being mocked. And that's what all these people are doing to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Uh, He's come claiming to be those things. But none of these people are submitting to him as such. They're They're not submitting to him as prophet, priest, and king. They don't perceive that they need Jesus, nor do they want Jesus. In fact, they hate Jesus, especially the chief priests and the scribes. They are rejecting him as prophet, priest, and king. And why are they doing that? Why are they rejecting him? He, he only did good to people. Well, the real reason is that Jesus is God, and the, the natural human heart bears malice towards God. The human heart is naturally rebellious against God. The human heart does not want God to instruct it as a prophet. The human heart does not want to admit it needs to be saved by God as a priest. And it certainly does not want to submit to God as a king. It wants to rule itself. human heart has malice towards God, and it's not limited to the first century. It's the human condition, which means that every human being who has ever lived is naturally hostile to God. We read about it in Colossians. Paul says, you were at one time hostile to God. It's not popular to talk about. We don't like to hear that, that we're hostile to God, that our hearts don't naturally even like God. But it's a fundamental teaching of the Bible, and I've given you some scriptures there. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2.3 tells us there, I've underlined, You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That word children of wrath, that phrase, means that children under the wrath of God. You are enemies of God like the rest of mankind, all of mankind naturally are children of wrath. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh, it's another way of saying our natural tendencies, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't do it. The Bible teaches that the human heart is not neutral to God, but rather it is naturally hostile to God's claims. We hate anything that threatens our self-sovereignty. We want to be our own master and lord prophet, priest, and king. Now some might say, well, I'm not hostile to God. I don't hate God. Uh, You know, I'm just indifferent about the whole thing. Well, but as some have said, the deepest form of hate is indifference. Apathy means that you simply don't care about someone and they don't affect you in any way, shape, or form. Apathy is another form of hate. Now this hatred of God is often hidden to us. Sometimes it's unconscious. You may not even be aware of it because you've never really been confronted with Jesus' absolute claims. Many people avoid the absolute claims of Jesus by believing in a limited Christ, one that's not so demanding. Maybe they think of Jesus as being a very gracious Savior, but not a holy one. And some people go the opposite direction. They believe in a holy God and not a a gracious God. 
And when you do that, when you limit God in that way, it makes him manageable. If you think of God as totally gracious, uh, you've, you've created a God uh, who is a big Santa Claus in the sky. Uh, he doesn't make any demands on you whatsoever. That's not threatening at all. What's to hate about that? We love Santa Claus. He gives us gifts, and that's all. But if we think of God as totally holy, we have to redefine sin, and we make it manageable so that we can buy God off. Well, God, I can, I can uh, uh, lessen your demands by you know, going to church and doing the right things, and you know, when I've paid you off, you owe me now. We do that. We think, why God, why are you doing this to me? I do this for you. See, that's someone who just thinks of God as holy and not as gracious. So when we have a limited view of God, when we don't see him in all of his glory as prophet, priest, and king, as holy and gracious, fully holy and gracious, we, we, we don't have a God who can make any demands of, of us, a God that's not demanding. But the God of the Bible is not only totally holy, but totally gracious. And not only does he demand we submit to his will, but he tells us that we are incapable of it. And we will have to rely completely on his grace, which he freely gives us. In other words, there's no other way, there's no way to confront the true God and retain a scrap or shred of self-sovereignty. We have no rights before a God like that. He's, he's so wonderful to us, and he has done so much for us that there's nothing that he cannot ask us. And that is scary. And that is what the natural, unredeemed, unredeemed human heart cannot stand. We cannot stand anything that threatens our self-sovereignty. So we've got this serious problem. A serious problem. We naturally hate God. And he's the wrong person to hate. <laughs> because who can oppose God? It's a certain losing battle. What can be done for us? And that brings us to the third point. The nature of God's grace. Here we have the good news. We see God graciously at work in this passage. Amazingly. And I've given you three subpoints to that. First of all, God's gracious work is a relentless pursuit of sinners who hate him. We've already seen it. I mean, I love it in John, the book of John, where you see Jesus uh, at one point being in Jerusalem, and he leaves Jerusalem because they, he knows that they're going to kill him. And, they, and he says the hour has not yet come, so he leaves and he goes into the wilderness for a while. <clears throat> and then he heads back towards Jerusalem. He makes a conscious decision to turn and go, and it's spurred on by the death of Lazarus. He goes back, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he heads into Jerusalem. He's already predicted for us that he's going to suffer and die. He knows what's coming, and he heads right towards it. He heads right into the hurricane, and he goes there, and he faces uh, false witnesses. He faces uh, the beatings and the scourgings, and he does not open his mouth. He is relentlessly pursuing uh, the redemption of sinful human beings like us. You notice what they're saying to him on the cross. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Or the, the chief priest, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, this is a satanic suggestion. 
There's no way he's coming down off that cross. That's what he came to do. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, Christ is going to have all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, He is going to conquer them with his love. But it's going to require him suffering. And what Satan is doing is saying, look, take a shortcut. Cut out all the suffering and bow down to me. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he predicts his death in Mark chapter 8. And Peter rebukes him. says, you're the Messiah. You're not going to die. What are you, what's all this talk about dying? You know, this is, this is stupid talk. And he, Jesus strongly rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You have only the thoughts, uh, you have set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of God, but the things of man. So see, again, Peter's giving him a, a satanic suggestion that his mission of redemption can be accomplished by another way. You don't need to die. So when they say, come down from the cross again, Satan is, I think, tempting him through these people. Because what did he tell Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter starts swinging the sword around and cuts off the, priest, uh, the servant of the priest's ear? And he says, Peter, put your sword away. You know, I can call 10,000 angels and, and, and could be rescued at this very moment. But he doesn't do that. He goes willingly to the cross. So there's no way he's coming down off the cross. He's determined to accomplish his saving purposes. Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. <clears throat> he, he, he looked at the cross and what he was accomplishing and the joy that it would bring to his people who were saved that fueled his passion to do this. He despised the shame. He looked at the shame and he thought nothing of it. He could endure that for the sake of his people. So we see him enduring in his pursuit of sinners. And he has to pursue them because they hate him. And that's what he's doing here. Some of you who watch Fox News may be familiar with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten Powers is, a, is an analyst on Fox News, and she writes for other publications as well, USA Today. Um, and she worked in the Clinton administration. She's a Democrat. She's liberal. But the Lord has chased her down. And here's what she said to focus on the family this past week. I started dating someone who went to Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. Out of curiosity, I went with him, but I told him up front that I would never become a Christian, that it's never going to happen. After about six or seven months, I began to think that the weight of history is more on the side of what I was hearing at this church than not. Tim Keller had made such a strong case that I began to think it's not even smart to reject this. It just doesn't seem like a good intellectual decision. Really, it was like God sort of invaded my life. It was very unwelcome. I didn't like it. Obviously, I started having a lot of different experiences where I felt God was doing a lot of things in my life. It's kind of hard to describe, but I did have this moment where the scales just fell off my eyes, where I was saying, this is just totally true. I don't even have any doubt. I don't really feel like I had any courage when I became a Christian. I just gave in. I wasn't courageous I didn't have any choice. I kept trying not to believe, but I just couldn't avoid accepting Christ. If I could have avoided it, I would have. 
There's nothing convenient about it in my life or in the world I live in. It's not like living in the South where everybody is a Christian. I live in a world where nobody is a believer, but God pursued me. And that's what God does for us, and that's what Christ is doing here, a relentless pursuit of his people. And we should give him all the praise and glory that he did this. It's awesome that he would pursue us with such great love. But secondly, in this sub, second sub-point, God's gracious work is easy, easy to misinterpret. I mean, Jesus is doing this great thing on the cross, but no one at the, at the cross understands what's really going on. They thought God had abandoned Jesus, that Jesus was cursed, so they cursed him in turn. It was over for Jesus. The Jesus experiment and the hope in Jesus is over. The Romans have got him and he's dead. But they shouldn't have cursed him for being cursed. They should have blessed him for being cursed. Because he was made a curse for sinners like them and like us. He was abandoned by the fathers, by the Father. So sinners like them and like us would never be abandoned by the Father. These deep redemptive purposes are being carried out right under their nose in the very things they thought were not redemptive at all. They thought the opposite was happening. But he was redeeming his people. And God is just that way. He uses weakness as strength. God's Savior comes in weakness and he saves those who repent, who admit their moral weakness. He saves them from sin and death itself. The priests and the scribes there at the cross mock him and say that his weakness is a barrier to salvation. But we see here that his weakness is the very thing that actually accomplishes our salvation. God is relentlessly pursuing us in ways that we may seem are much the opposite. It should make us patient with God and with his work in our lives. When trouble comes to us, don't think, why has God abandoned me? Why is God doing this to me? Rather, think, how is this trouble serving God's redemptive purposes for me? How is this trouble going to make me grow in grace? How is this trouble making me repent and turn from sin? How is it strengthening my faith? Because God is always at work in his people. And he uses some crazy means to do so sometimes. Some things that we think are, are just the opposite of God at work. But that's the way God does. And then the good news is that this gracious work of God cannot be thwarted. Third sub-point. Jesus' opponents think they've won. They believe they are destroying the kingship that he claimed. They believe that they have put an end to all his purposes. But the exact opposite is true. They have helped him accomplish it all. They mock him by saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Exactly the point. He saved others by not saving himself. See, God is sovereign. You can't thwart his purposes. He will accomplish everything he wills, and he, he wills to save a people from their sins. And that's what Christ is doing here. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Now, fourthly and finally, very briefly, the nature of true discipleship. You know, if we embrace this grace and, and this provision for sin that, that God has made for us in Christ, uh, how do we live? Well, we have this guy, Simon of Cyrene. 
And he is a symbol of discipleship. Because Jesus, back in chapter 8, some of you will recall, he said this, if anyone anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It says here that Simon was just a passerby. He's from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. So he's traveled from Libya. There was a, a Jewish community there. And he's come to the Passover. He's made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And he's coming in from the country, it says. And here he is walking along, minding his own business, going to Jerusalem, while the procession, the crucifixion, is coming out, outside the city gates, to Golgotha. And they, these Roman soldiers grab him up, and they compel him and force him to carry his cross. It wasn't something that he chose to do. He wasn't being a nice guy. You know, he was compelled to do it. Now, he had different reasons to be compelled. You know, a Roman soldier with a a sword and a spear is very compelling. But we have something even greater to compel us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. His great love, his great grace, all that he's done for us. As I said before, because he has been so wonderful to us, and and he's he's given us so much, and, and showered his grace upon us, there's nothing that he cannot ask us to do that would be too much. What could ever be too much for a Savior like this? May we take up our cross and follow him, deny ourselves, deny the feelings that we have, that we want to rule ourselves, we want to be our own Savior, we, want to, we don't want to admit any weakness and come to him humbly, recognizing that we need this sacrifice that he's made on the cross. Now, just one last thought. We have the soldiers there shooting dice at the foot of the cross, completely oblivious to what's going on, completely hardened to, to all these, this wonderful activity that's going on around them. You know, they're, they're focused on something trivial and silly and even wicked. You know, I wonder what we're taking away from the cross, this scene of the cross. Are, are we oblivious to what's, what Jesus has done? Or have we really looked at it? Have we really looked at the claims of Christ? Have we uh, considered uh, the offices of Christ, that he's a prophet, a priest, a king, and what those mean for us, what it means for me? One of these soldiers, I don't know if it's one of these soldiers, but a soldier is going to get it. In just a few verses, he's going to say, surely this man was the son of God. We'll look at that next week. Do you know that, that surely Jesus Christ is the son of God? Is he your prophet, priest, and king? Let's pray together.